on this episode of The Clappers. Perry Mason. The Five Bloods. Brabham. The Melbourne International Film Festival goes digital and it works. Little Scarlet by Walter Mosley. And the Tour de France coming up. Welcome to The Clappers. This is Andrew Young. And this is Carl Quinn. We're on the same page today, Carl, aren't we? <laughs> are we? <laughs> we are. We just discussed... Off air, off mic, as it were, but on mic. Don't give away our trade secrets. Yeah, we shouldn't give away the secrets. We're going to talk about Perry Mason right off the bat as a television program that stands on its own. And if you just want to look at it as something you never know anything about Perry Mason, I think it's great. Mm. I'm always happy to see Matthew Rhys the Welshman on the screen. <laughs> I saw him recently in Edwin Drood. Have you seen that, Edwin Drood? It's uh, marvellous. Is that a Dickens thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's it's a one... It. It's not a series or anything. It's just a, it's just a one film, and he's wonderful. He's apparently in this other show that I got very tired of and didn't continue with that that others are obsessed by called The Americans. Mm. Do you know that show? Yeah, I do know. I've only seen one or two episodes of it. Yeah, those you're a busy man. It, You've got really shows to watch. Love it. Yeah, exactly. So this is about a uh, initially a bum who who is doing piecework for a. Los Angeles attorney, you know, finding scraps of information for him and yet really uh, the kind of person who would only have a place to live in because it used to be his family's farm, which is now completely run down and non-operational. And is with a, 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 an airstrip through the middle of it. Yeah, with an airstrip. That, and and the, the, the lady who owns the airstrip, who he is having a, a nocturnal relationship with, is hassling him to sell <laughs> because she wants to expand the airstrip. It's, it's like the, it, it's really a miserable bones to begin this, this series with. I it's think it's what you call a down on his heels gumshoe isn't he? he he really is and he and you can smell him through the screen you know <laughs> when we talked about waking fright smell vision <laughs> no no i'm getting a new television soon i reckon and i'm going to make sure it has that feature and <laughs> but uh we watched wake and fright a while back and talked about how you could feel the heat yeah. through the screen you know and you can smell him through the screen he's the kind of person that you would immediately leave the room <laughs> because he's just somebody uh, not devoted to the personal hygiene of, of of his employers for instance he is a war veteran from yeah. the first world war he is traumatized he uh, has has maybe one friend you know he's the archetypal private eye mm. and it's it's uh, not not what you think about when you think of Perry Mason. You think of this smooth courtroom daddy in a suit and tie and charming or hectoring the jury, depending on what, what where the case is going. Uh, so it's it's I get Robert Downey Jr. who produced it. Um, I think calls it an origin story. You know, it's about Perry Mason before Perry Mason. You know, and uh, it's very very ably written, well acted. Uh, the supporting cast is fantastic. He has a he's the attorney he works for has an assistant who does all the work. You know that type of assistant who is far more than an assistant, but is only paid as an assistant called Della Street, who is played by oh I can't remember her name Juliet Rylance. Juliet Rylance, and and she is related to Mark Rylance in a father daughter type situation. <laughs> so uh, I I generally don't like to watch. TV shows or films that involve uh, certain types of cliched murders that people get far too salacious and, and 
into and I think it's a it's a poor marking of our society so I had to had to take a step over my principles to continue watching this show it's a pretty grisly murder that kicks it really is off. it's just horrible yeah. and I have to yeah. tell you as you would expect through the the nine episodes of the season you find out more about it and it is actually quite a surprise at, in, in a way how things transpired not how you expect Okay. Uh, it's it's a great show, and I, I love the Welsh as as a people. They're downtrodden. They're miserable, as uh, John Cleese says. Their only function is to serve the the English in oh, some menial Lord. capacity. I love them. I love their voices. I love their stylings, and it's it's always happy to see one pretending not to be Welsh. Uh, in the case of Matthew Rees, so it's it's. It's not, there's far more gruesome, gory stuff on television. It, it's not going to turn your stomach, I, I don't think. I, I, could be, I could be inured to that by this point in my life, but I think it's great and I really look forward to uh, another one. I'm a greedy man, as mm. I've said. I, I think this, this is just a setup for uh, further episodes. The whole season is on the one crime. It's not a, like a lot of them, a crime, a, an episode, but yeah. it's the whole thing. I, look, I... I've only seen the first episode. Uh, I, I didn't stop watching it because I didn't like it. I thought it looked fantastic. Um, I just, you know, we've had uh, Melbourne International Film Festival has taken up a lot of my time, so I haven't really had a chance to devote myself to it. Um, but I, I fully intend to. The thing that like immediately grabbed me was the look of it. I mean, mm -hmm. it looks. I don't. I don't. I don't sort of peg you as a computer gamer, Andrew. So um, mm -hmm. I don't know that you've ever seen or played La Noir. Um, I know of it. I've right. not played it, but well, I know that I, I've heard I of it. I think this series really has um, a very, very similar aesthetic. It's this kind of like vaguely sepia-toned 1930s, uh, what is it, 1940s? No, no, it's, it's 1931. 1931, okay, yeah. And so, it is a saturated look, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Los Angeles. Um, it's, it's, it's saturated, but it's at times it's stylized. I mean, I think there are backdrops that are kind of, they're rendered in a way that's not super detailed, you know. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like they're – it's not that important. They're just kind of there, you know. They're just sort of there. We're not going to We're not gonna overly fixate on, on There's that. not a lot of landmarks mm. that you would you, – like you get in, in somewhere. They really want you to know that you're in yeah. Paris or New York it or London. It feels to they, me like they've, they don't do they've that. kind of taken the same approach as you do with computer game world building, you know, which is mm -hmm. to sort of build it in – in a computer, and that's where the story is taking place. And it's taking place in this constructed environment. Rather than trying to recreate it sort of uh, in, you know, um, great detail in the, in the pseudo-real world. Mm. I mean, I might be wrong because, because as I say, I've only seen the first episode, so maybe it doesn't sustain over the whole well, thing. Well, for but... me, there's a satisfying balance between exterior and interior, mm. and the it there are things that I, I'll have a look at and I, I won't be able to watch because there's just so much CG that it's it's hard to it's really hard to get a sense of, of depth or balance between mm. where the characters are placed and, and what they're doing and and I don't get that sense here at all mm. and there are exteriors that are you know trees and houses and bridges and where they they are actually out there yeah. you know what I mean yeah. and then there are, are, are more constructed ones that would you know 60 years ago have been filmed on the back lot. And it, I don't think you, you'll... I think when you watch it, you won't be too dazzled or interested in, in that aspect of it. I think the, the drama and the characters will probably get you 
bring you in. And of course, the fact that it has that sort of backlot or set feel about it gives it a, a nice link to the type of shows that like were made. Warner Brothers movies of, of, yeah, of that Yeah, the period. Republic and Warner Brother, yeah. Brother films of, of the 40s. Yeah, but I do think it's really interesting the way that, I, and, I, and I, I haven't read about about the show in any detail, so I, I haven't really investigated this, but I, I, I suspect that there is a very deliberate and very conscious um, sort of intertextuality between this show and computer games, a reference to L.A. Noir. Um, well, Noir, I want you to look that up. Of, I think it actually comes out of Australia, L.A. Noir. Um, actually um, developed in Sydney, I think, if I remember. Okay. Um, but it's, it's um, yeah, I mean, I just I just think that's very interesting because, I mean, you know, mostly, uh, you know, there are, there are plenty of other instances of film and TV stuff that is derives from computer games, but this this doesn't derive from it. It just kind of references it visually, and I think that's that's a really interesting little um, moment, you know, in terms of the the development of the aesthetic aesthetic of um, film and TV stuff. So, just as an aside, yeah. One thing I'm going to say that's that is a little the kind of thing that gets in my head, and I can't stop thinking about when I'm watching something like this. Right? It's Set in 1931, yet the music is music of maybe 20, 30 years beyond that period in time. Mm. And I can, I was listening to, to, it's great music. Like you'd be very happy to have it on in your living room, in your own house while you were doing the housework or something, or just sitting there enjoying a cognac and in your smoking jacket. It, it's by Terence Blanchard, and I, I, I heard at the end there's some great little lines. I thought, man, I wonder if that's Terence Blanchard, because he's a, quite a recognisable sound and has done a lot of soundtrack work, and it is, and it's great music, but it just doesn't really suit the period. You, know, you can have two views. You can say that if you're going to make something made in, set in 1930, then the music has to be like it's from 1930. Or you can say, no, nah, we can go full-on Blue Oyster Cult and just... You know, take it in another direction, and Blue that's the cult. <laughs> Help me! What are you doing? Oh, Heinz to send a Neubartner. Take your pick. Craftwork. We're doing. <laughs> so you know, um, it's it's a it's a minor thing, and only some Poindexter like me would probably be be bothered by it. It's 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 good, really good music, but it just it doesn't suit the time period for me. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna use the Terence Blanchard Blanchard moment to mm -hmm. segue to talk about the Five Bloods. Have you seen that? I have Spike not. You know what? I've been really one minute I want to see it, the mm. next minute I don't want to see it. Yeah. It's a weird thing like that with me. Yeah. Well, I I initially was reluctant to see it because I mean I you know I'm I'm quite a fan of Spike's work. I mean, mm -hmm. once upon a time I was doing a, a, an honors thesis on Spike Lee's work back in a previous lifetime. Can um, we get that up on the Facebook page, please? Please. I've already got, while we've been we speaking, I've already we got... possibly get my, my um, introductory chapter. I've never finished it. So. I've already got L.A. Noir up. I'm, I'm about to type, type that in and put that up on the Facebook page so people can learn about L.A. Noir, published by Rockstar Games, developed by Team Bondi. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah. uh, The Five Bloods, Spike Lee's newest film on, on Netflix. Um, it 
suffers, I think, from the Netflix syndrome, which is that the thing that makes big-name directors want to go to Netflix is that they get a good budget uh-huh. and they don't get people telling them to cut their film. <laughs> so consequently, yep. you get all these films that are like, they're too bloody long. Uh-huh. This, is, this yeah. is one of them. I reckon take out 15 or 20 minutes and this would have, would have been better. It's about two and a half hours long. Mm-hmm. Um, it covers a lot of terrain. It, it shifts tone and mood and vibe quite significantly over the course of its two and a half hours. It ends up in kind of action movie territory, but it starts off as a fairly contemplative piece that it actually reminded me a little bit of, the, um, of Detroit, the Catherine Bigelow film. It's, it's about four um, Vietnam veterans, all African-American, who go back in country, as they say. Um, ah, yeah. In the, in, well, I think it's meant to be the modern day. I mean, this is, I'll get to this time thing in a, in a second. Um, they go back to ostensibly retrieve the bones of the fifth uh, member of their, their gang, you know, the Five Bloods. And, um, but there's also a mission to basically retrieve and effectively spirit out of the country uh, a shipment of gold, which the American um, uh, army had sent to the South Vietnamese troops to pay them at some point during the war. The plane that was transporting the gold gold was shot down. These mm-hmm. guys found the plane. Uh, they, I, It's not entirely clear, but I think they were supposedly on a mission to retrieve the gold. They found it and they buried it with the intention of going back at some point to retrieve it. So anyway, in the intervening years, 50 years, uh, the gold was lost, there was a flood and blah, 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 and then suddenly the tail of the plane has turned up on satellite imagery and so they decide to go back and try and find it. So that's the, that's the key kind of storyline. But really it's, it grapples with all sorts of things about the legacy of that war, which of course all the Vietnamese characters refer to as the American War, not the, Viet- mm-hmm. not the Vietnamese mm-hmm. War, for obvious reasons. Um, and there's, you know, there's sort of a lot in it about trauma about PTSD, about uh, not not having resolved a lot of the issues that that, that experience raised, about guilt, about uh, about resentment on the part of the Vietnamese, uh, seeing that them seeing the Americans as you know, rightly so as invaders, uh, and them not being particularly welcome as they come back on their you know, the Americans are back there for their healing journey or whatever it might be. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. That doesn't necessarily help the Vietnamese with their no, experience. No, no. So, How dare you come back and heal? Indeed, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff going on in this film, and I think it's really, really interesting. And mm. it, as I say, it rambles and it sort of goes down, you know, some sort of narrative alleyways that, that don't quite pay off. But I think overall, I thought it was really pretty great. I really, okay. really liked it. So... Um, and the reason you know we got there is Terence Blanchard does the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, it's you know it, it's he's done a, most of them apart from the ones that Spike Lee's father did. That's right. Yeah, yeah the early awesome. ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, it's well worth checking out. I reckon it's um, far better than um, I got. I got uh, you know a mate gave me the heads up and said, "Oh, don't bother. It's really bad." Mm. Almost was enough to put me off. Um, but I thought, oh, yeah, Carl, after what you said last I know, time. I know. Goodness me. I know. Well, that's the thing. I <laughs> then for took you, corrective then. action. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, At I, least I, I didn't tweet. It's no, really well, bad. That's the, I've that's heard. The important. Really Are you bad. on Twitter? Do you tweet? Oh, yeah. Okay. 
you know, it's it's sort of uh, it's kind of a professional obligation to be on Twitter at some level. Have you heard of an author called Walter Mosley? Of course, yeah. 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 He writes he writes a lot. He's got a, a few different series running and his the books of his that I've read and I enjoy are ones featuring a investigator called Ezekiel Rawlins, known as Easy Rawlins. Yeah. yeah. Who is a war veteran and traumatized by that. And is not your so average pri- thing going on here. private eye. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's different about him as a private eye is that he is quite well off. He grew up in the South with nothing, uh, you know, a rural um, Texas, I think, poor, uh, no heating, no water, you know, and uh, joined the army, moves to Los Angeles. He owns his own house in a really nice neighbourhood. He owns apartments, an apartment building, and he's the custodian at a high school uh, run by a, a, a white woman, the Sojourner Truth, who was a, a female black activist, Sojourner Truth High School. He likes to keep a low profile. He doesn't want anybody to know that he's well off. He doesn't want people to know that he owns property. So he has this guy running it for him, and everyone thinks he's the guy that owns it, you know, mm-hmm. the custodian. Like the, what do they call them? The super. Yeah, the super at the apartment, and he gets caught up in crimes in his own community, and he attempts to solve them. And through these books, you learn uh, uh, Walter Mosley is an African American author, and Ezekiel Rawlins is an African American character, and you learn about the 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 life of Black Americans from the post-war period through. Uh, the book I've just read, reread, Little Scarlet, is set in nineteen sixty-five during the Watts riots, and it was quite opposite to the uh, the times that we live in now, where there are uh, uh, African Americans rioting and protesting in the United States, and there's a lot of Richard Wright, uh, James Baldwin, um, expatriate African American authors in this in this novel, uh, informing the autodidact that uh, Easy Rawlins is. He is asked to help. The Los Angeles police, which is not something that uh, any African-American would really want to do, solve a crime where a black woman has been killed and a white man has been fingered for it and they want to quell the riots, not restart them again. And so he has to try and work out whether this is what really happened or whether it was somebody else. I'm sure that there was a time when Walter Mosey was writing these novels that he might have thought that we progressed beyond the times of the 50s and 60s. He still writes. He has... uh, recently been involved in a television program called Snowfall that John Singleton, the film director, has uh, put together about the rise of crack cocaine in Los Angeles. And uh, he's a creative consultant and and written episodes and uh, very interestingly wrote an opinion piece called Why I Quit the Writer's Room for the New York Times about another show that he was involved in and asked to be part of the writer's room where he got a note from HR saying that somebody in the room was uncomfortable with him using the N-word. And he said, I am the N-word in the writer's room. And I was describing what happened when a white policeman pulled me up in Los Angeles when I was a younger man and what he said to me. And uh, he quit that show. That was Star Trek Discovery, right? What's that? It was Star Trek. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, wow. How about that? How about that? Star, Star Trek was a show that was all about diversity and, uh, you know, famous. I mean, it's not the original series of Star Trek, obviously, but the original no. series yes. of yes. Star Trek is famous for having the first interracial kiss on American um, TV. That's with, with Kirk uh, and um, Uhuru. Uhuru. Yeah. 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 So his books are very exciting. There are some problems. Black Betty is the one that, that ah, Black I, Betty. I was yep. trying to remember before. Yeah. You'll know that they're easy Rawlins books because they each have a colour in the title. Mm. Um, the the, the modern reader... <laughs> <laughs> the contemporary reader might have problems with the female characters in this book. And you could say, well, the hard-boiled style of detective book yeah. relies on certain tropes, certain um, relationships between the sexes. Not all the women are caricatures or viewed of in terms of their um, sexual capacity from Easy Rollins' point of view. There are uh, a, a wide variety of different female characters, but basically they're books about men doing things and solving problems um, with the occasional help, non-domestical, non-nocturnal help of female characters. But I I enjoy them a lot. I'm... I'm there's probably three or four that I haven't read, which is good. I look forward to reading more. But very interesting reading a, a novel written, you know, a few decades post the, the What's Riots and looking at it with a certain amount of hindsight about what it meant in terms of the civil rights movement and how it changed um, American society at that time. Hey, uh, I'm, I'm not going to talk about it now, but I'm going to give you some homework, Andrew. Mm, yeah. Because it's kind of in the same, you know, we're in the same territory here. Mm. Lovecraft Country. Okay. Check it yep. out. Yep. It's on, on Foxtel. Next time we chat about it, I think mm. it's, I think it's uh, quite amazing. And uh, yep. I reckon you'll find a lot to enjoy on that. So uh, I set you homework uh, the other week. Had you, you did, Carl. You did. I did well. I. You sent me two things to watch. One I watched, one I didn't. Uh, sorry. <laughs> oh, could try harder. Good try. I know that's that's going to be when I'm in the ground and you're standing over my grave. You'll have a chisel <laughs> and a hammer, and you'll be getting rid of the epitaph that's there and replacing it with "could try harder, but didn't." And here he lies. So I watched Andrew Brabham. Was a disruptive influence on the podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so I watched Brabham. Yeah. Um. And I, out of a sense of duty and devotion to the podcast, I watched it all the way through. <laughs> that's, I, that's, that's not sounding like a ringing endorsement. I'm not endorsing this. I'm not endorsing <laughs> it at all. I'm wondering who and why. Who the person was who made it. And I don't mean what their name is because that is emblazoned on the screen more than once, but who they are in terms of their view of Jack Brabham or Jack Brabham's family and why they made it. Right. It's a very strange tribute. It's, um, well, it starts off with little Stevie Wright singing Black Eyed Bruiser, a hit for him from about 1971 or something. Is it, is it, yeah, okay. 
and as as in the as in what what I was saying before about the um, the Perry Mason and the music, yeah. this is even less appropriate. Like it's just rock and Stevie all the way through this documentary, and most of this documentary I've, I've no issues with that, by the way. is set in the fifties and sixties. Anyway, that 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 started me going aye aye. Um, there's a lot of padding. There's a lot of footage that is not actually relevant, but just old footage. We've got to stick some old footage in. Right. There's this weird kind of quasi. Um, I don't know, meta documentary going on at the same time where we're following a faceless man in his pyjamas around his house <laughs> and looking at his computer screen and him sifting through burnt photographs and a television screen which is framing all this footage from the uh, 60s, 70s, and it's terrible. It looks terrible and it's completely uh, disjointed and jarring for, for me as the viewer. Talking Heads, questionable. Uh, I found that the the, uh, the 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 cuts were were odd. Uh, having Sterling Moss just gaping at the camera, opening and closing his mouth half the time, did nothing to either him or the story. His actual comments from the past were very useful. Um, the the as I said, the padding of just little bits of Mike Willisy and This Is Your Life. Uh, again, were really weird and frustrating. It, it, it did gain some momentum at some point when we go through the Drivers' Championships and we get to uh, 1965 and it's like, oh, this is really interesting. You know, he's, 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 he's left Cooper, he's started his own car company, he's making his own car, he's actually, you know, starting to win and bang, we go straight to the funeral. Which is right. another we, you know, home video of the funeral that we keep cutting backwards and forwards to. It's it's the strangest thing, and there's this almost ironic moment where a, 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 an interviewee who I have no idea why he's there because he says absolutely nothing of any use or relevance says, "Guys, guys, 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 you got to be professional here. You can't be walking back. Nah, nah, we'll do it how I want." Ron Dennis is his name. He works at um, McLaren, I think. Um, and had a brief relationship as a mechanic with Jack Brabham. And all he has to say is that he's grumpy. And by being grumpy and yelling at the... It, it's, it really is quite bizarre. I did enjoy seeing him fly a plane. We get to see lots of padded footage of Jack Brabham for no apparent reason flying a light aircraft, which is, which is a testament to the man's skills. I mean, Andrew, God, he Andrew, is Andrew. one of the most important figures in motor racing, and he was not well served by this documentary, which... 15 minutes before the end, decides to focus on his son's motor racing career. Who knew? Mm. And his grandson. Mm. Ah, and the cheap dramatizations. My God. Um, we could have had a riff. We had a couple of journalists on this who had investigated, because there are all these little nods and winks about, oh, yeah, he's really into money. Oh, did he cheat? Oh, I'm not going to say he cheated, but all my. Bernie Eccleston, that. Oh, font of sporting integrity. Like, you can put him up next to one Samaranch. Um, Talking talking about Jack Brabham as well, you know, all motor racers cheat. I mean, money, man. I, really, Bernie was... Eccleston is the the moral touchstone in this film, is he? Yes, yes. Oh, you haven't watched it? No, no, I haven't seen it. Mm, no, mm, no. Well, I don't know why. Oh, they go to Bernie Eccleston because he bought the company. Um, yeah. It turns out at the end of the documentary to have all along been about the Jack Brabham company going back to the Jack Brabham family or the the Brabham family, right. which right. was never signalled at all. 
briefly, Brabham has a company. He decides to sell it. He sells it to the guy, Ron Taranak, who actually built and or had designed and was, was the brains behind the old operation. Bernie Eccleston goes up to Taranak and says, I'll buy it off you. How much do you want? He gives him what he tells him what he wants. He lowballs him. He gives him far less. Uh, Eccleston owns it and then it goes through a series of hands until David Brabham uh, invokes a court case and, and buys the Brabham name back. And it's, okay, it's okay. a enough, very enough. Enough about the detail of it. I mean, I, I'm I'm getting to the I'm getting the conclusion here. I'm getting uh, mm. getting the feeling here that this is not tenor. Right? I <laughs> haven't even mentioned Grayson Perry yet, have I? <laughs> don't please. I won't. Don't. I won't. <laughs> and and these weird homoerotic cartoons that that pepper and punctuate that it's the strangest thing you've ever seen i'm i'm, I'm kind of recommending it to you <laughs> the people who want to watch a weird documentary that doesn't seem to know what it's about other than to just show bits of pieces of a, a guy in a car but it weird like... homoerotic cartoons and strange attempts at levity where they've got some jaunty music and talk about a motor race where a, a driver crashes and dies burns into flames like every car race at that time, killing three spectators, and they're just talking about it in this jaunty way, having some jokes cut away to somebody on the water skis. and the, It's just so strange, and I was really annoyed. <laughs> really so I didn't watch Brock because I thought, oh, what's next, you know? I think Brock will probably be a better proposition. Well, you know what I want you to do? I want you to ask your Queensland mate, yeah. say, hey, Criv, have you seen... Grab him. And he'll say, of course I have. I see everything. I'm a director. Say, <laughs> is your film better? And if it is, by how much? Because really, there'll be a reckoning. There will be a reckoning from my, 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 my mate. My guess is that uh, Brock will lap Brabham. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, yes. In the enjoyment stage. I love, I love a little bit of motor racing yeah, jargon, yeah. as so, you know. So would you say that Brabham is a bit of a car crash of a film? It is, man. Oh. <laughs> it's the pits. I haven't mentioned the samurai, have I? Oh, stop! Stop! <laughs> oh God, I'm. It's so. I, you know, an hour and a half it is too. Like oh. I really wanted it to be. Re yeah, he deserves better. Jack Brabham as a icon of the sport, as as the only person who's won the world driving championship in a car that he made himself with Ron Taranek. I mean, he deserves better than this. He really does. I'm not saying as a father or as a gent in the world, just in terms of his career and work very yeah. very disappointed thanks carl yeah so I, might not, I might not that other homework he gave me i think i might might give that a miss actually well, i'll tell you what you, you can return serve all right you can give me some homework you know yeah you know i thought i would give you some homework i'll tell you what this sunday the tour de france is actually beginning believe it or not they claim that it, on sunday it will roll out the tour de france for the However many How are they time. going to enforce some, you know, social distancing in the peloton? They're not. But they have said, and they've said it in that really nice, friendly way that they, the ASO have of saying, if two riders testify, uh, test, if two riders test, I've got testify on the mind, <laughs> two riders test positive to COVID-19, the team will be disqualified. Right. Uh, that's nice because, you know, it's like it's their fault. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it'll be a very interesting race because everybody is not up to match fitness. There's been 20 weeks of no racing. Mm. So it could well so be... So I could have a shot this year, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it could, could be well the be the, the most interesting Tour de France 
that there has ever been. Uh, Chris Froome and Garrett Thomas are not in it. They've been dropped from their own team. Really? <laughs> they are not in it. They are not riding in this race. The two winners of have won uh, five uh, for, for Team Sky slash Ineos. No. Nope. Uh, Egan Bernal, who won last year, he's going and his own crack team and no Froome or uh, Garen Thomas. So that in itself is very interesting. But as we said last week, should you, when, in talking about the uh, uh, movie star documentary, should you really go to a major uh, stage race with three leaders or one? Um, Andrew, just briefly wanted to mention mm. the fact that uh, the Melbourne International Film Festival, which was completely online this year, has uh, just wrapped as we're recording this. And it was, I'd have to say, I, I enjoyed it. Although right. my experience of the film festival always tends to be isolated to yes. some degree. I tend to watch a lot of stuff on, on uh, screeners on my own, at home, on my TV, on my laptop, whatever it might be, or at my desk at work. Uh, because I'm watching these things to do stories, you know, so mm. I'm watching them before the screening happens. Uh, it's kind of a treat when I actually say, yeah, bugger it, I'm going to go out tonight and actually watch a movie in the cinema um, mm. the film festival because that's that's actually my least typical way of engaging with it. So the whole thing about it being online this year didn't really make that much difference to me. Um, it was the Festival of Carl. It was... <laughs> It's my kind of festival. I love it. That's yeah. great. You deserve it, mate. Yeah, You've yeah. put so much into this festival over the years. I think it was. Um, I watched. I think I saw about sixteen, seventeen films over over the. I think basically I averaged a film a day, which you know it's okay. Not That's much, good, man. Um, I, I, I did a story on a woman who was uh, setting out to watch everything in the festival, um, and, I, and she was on track. How'd she go? Well, I spoke to her on the Thursday and it finished on the Sunday and she was on track. She was doing it alphabetically. <laughs> Which well, I'm gonna say is an interesting not? way to go. Why, why not? Why not? <laughs> there were including the shorts and she was watching the shorts as well, hundred and eighteen films. So That's less, isn't it, than the normal Oh yeah, it's, it's much less yeah. than, than yeah. uh the year before I think it was including all the shorts and VR stuff, four hundred and two films. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, they they did well in terms of what they call attendance, um, mm -hmm. the number of streams they had, and and they work on a multiplier of maybe one and a half people watching per oh, I see. stream. Yeah, they, okay. Uh, well, streams alone were in excess of how many um, attendances they had last year at the, mm. the Real World Festival. The Real, yeah. With okay. about one third of the number of films. So you know, it's like that's pretty interesting. I think it makes it very very difficult for them not to have some sort of digital element going forward. Um, so it poses problems in terms of distribution really? rights and in terms of, uh, you know, uh, um, some material that might be considered problematic when consumed in that way. Yeah. Um, but I, I kind of think that, that there will be an, on, an online element of the Melbourne Film Festival, Melbourne International Film Festival going forward and probably other festivals as well, I think. Twenty percent of the audience, they're saying, came from interstate, and yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't seen any sort of breakdown on what percentage came from outside of Melbourne. You'd have to figure that it's far in excess of what they would normally have experienced. So mm. it expands the reach. It's uh, it's good for access for people who might have you know disabilities or be otherwise uh, unable to make it into the city with any um, you know consistency or ease. So. Mm. 
think there's a lot to be said for doing it this way, um, but there's also a lot that you miss out on, obviously. The, the social aspect, the, the experience of seeing a film in a cinema with with a group of people and having that shared kind of... <laughs> Idiots. Uh, you'd hope not so much. As, <laughs> no, as I'm as just... I'm joking. Well, yeah, I'm joking. on Captain Misanthrope. It's all right. Um, um, <laughs> there is, you know, there is definitely something that is lacking, I think, when you when you consume mm-hmm. films in this way at home. Um, but, you know, there's upside too. So it, I think it, it definitely means that they're going to have to engage with it going forward. I think um, I've, I've heard nothing to that effect yet, but I, I'd be very, very surprised if we didn't see this festival and others having some significant kind of online component in the future. The Melbourne Writers Festival had its whole program online, and I'm, like like the Melbourne International Film Festival, it also sold out sessions. So it wasn't people would imagine, I think, fairly that if it's online, well, how, how can it sell out? I mean, you know, if 40 people can watch, 100 people can watch, right? Yeah. But they yeah. they placed restrictions on that. And you know, the, interestingly, the Malcolm Turnbull <laughs> talk sold out um, and others, others didn't. And it had a system of the ones that I looked at of pay what you can oh, yeah. okay. or pay, pay what you the want. The lentil is anything approach. To the lentil is anything approach. One of the beauties of having it, online and the beauties of streaming is that you don't have to stop work or yeah. rearrange your work. You yeah. can do it when it suits you after work. Yeah. Well, you know? I mean, the, the film festival, I think, did handled that really well, I, I, mm-hmm. I feel, in that they most things yes. were available yes. to watch over the course of the festival, over the 17 days. But there were, mm, you know, a handful of events, maybe four or five, I can't, I can't remember exactly, Mm-hmm. Um, that were in a particular window, and so mm-hmm. you, you, you know they would go live at seven pm. They would be live until midnight, so you had a reasonably wide window, you know, in excess of the duration of the film itself, to watch it, uh, and um, and then it was gone. And mm-hmm. um, th- with the films that were there for the duration, you had thirty hours from when you press play to, to consume it. So if you yeah. were interrupted and had to go off and you know tend to the kids or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. you still had the opportunity to, ca- to catch it. So I think that was a really, really good way to handle it. But there was one in particular, an Icelandic film called Last and First Men, which um, was the one and only directed work by jo- Johan- Johannes Johansson, who is uh, um, an Icelandic composer, uh, twice nominated for Oscars for his work. Um, he died, I think, in 2018. And it's a black and white film. And it's narrated by Tilda Swinton, and it's a, the premise. It, it's based on a novel, but the premise is that it's uh, um, a voice from the descendants of uh, humans two billion years in the future who are about to be made extinct, uh, and they're talking back to present-day humans. And it's just it's just this wonderful little contemplative piece that is. Images are all uh, of this bizarre sort of sculptural, um, I guess you call it a sculpture park out, out in the mountains of the former Yugoslavia somewhere. Oh, okay. And they're brutalist, concrete brutalist structures, and they're all kind of abstract shapes, and, and it's just very, very slow panning camera work over these forms in black and white with this beautiful soundtrack mm. composed 
by Johansson, and this sort of um, you know, lulling kind of narration from Tilda Swinton. You're never going to see that in a cinema, never. You might see it in an art gallery, but mm. it was just it's just gorgeous. It's just an amazing piece of work. I love I love seeing it. And that's why I've always been the great advocate for film festivals mm. is that you will see things you would never think you'd ever want to see or you never even knew existed. Yeah. And there you are, you've got your pass, you've got two hours between the next thing you're going to see. So you go and you see this and you think, oh, my God, I would never have seen it. And now I've seen it and my life has changed, yeah. which is what films do. They yeah. change your life. Well, now I know that we've only got two billion years to live, so um, better crack on with it. Better crack on, Carl. Well, let's crack on, Andrew. That'll do us for this episode of The Clappers, don't you think? I agree. (laughs) Until next time.